Hello, you're listening to Sarah Archer in episode 191 of the Speaking Club podcast. I'm going to open the show today by sharing a story about decision making. In 1998, the British Rowing Men's 8 team set a goal that they would win Olympic gold two years later, even though they'd had a bit of a rubbish record up to then. And they knew that in order to win the medal, their boat would have to go faster than all the others. So before they did anything, inside or outside training, they would ask the question, will it make the boat go faster? If the answer was yes, they did it. If it was no, they did something different. What about you? What's the goal that you want to achieve? And what criteria could you use to challenge your thoughts and actions in order to get you there? I started this podcast for two reasons. Because I want to help people recognize the power of stories and humor in speaking. And because I believe it's your message that counts, not the number of ums and ahs you use. There are some organizations that want to create robot speakers. They want you to sacrifice your personality in order to speak perfectly. But I want to let you know that you can be yourself and a sensational speaker. So, if you want to be a speaker that connects and engages authentically through stories, a speaker that gives value as well as a great performance, then welcome home. Hey, hello. I hope you're well. Thanks for joining me and choosing the Speaking Club to listen to. It's fab to be with you here again. And this week, we're talking about something that trips up individuals and organisations alike. Decision making. My guest is Dr Cheryl Kennedy, and she spent many years helping organisations be more successful, first as an academic and then later via her consulting company, Kennedy, through which she successfully helped many companies thrive through change and increase their organisational effectiveness. Now, Cheryl has developed a bit of a reputation for constructive challenge and tackling issues and individuals that others find too daunting. And her work around decision making is pretty unique and involves getting top teams to better understand human dynamics in the process and how to make good decisions consistently. Now, I've been working with Cheryl for a while and I love her passion for this subject her authenticity, there really are no flies on her, and her personality, all of which come through in this interview. And I'm sure you're going to get a lot out of it. So let's get it started. Welcome to the Speaking Club, Dr. Cheryl Kennedy. Thank you very much for inviting me, Sarah. Now, we are talking about decision making today. It's, it's interesting. I always think there's two camps here. There's the people who underestimate it and there's the people who can't make a decision like they. So that's, I've always been fascinated. But how did you first discover there was more to decision making than met the eye? Well, um, earlier in my career, I was sponsored by 20 blue chip companies, including BP, Heinz, Cabris and so on. And I was looking specifically at advertising effectiveness. So they gave me access to their senior people, all their data, etc. And I was perplexed because you had these big companies with vast resources, but they still took decisions which were crazy. They cost uh, a great deal of, of money 
and undermined the market presence. So I, I found that very curious. But then I was speaking at a conference in the early 90s and I came across Anita Hall and she introduced me to something called action profiling. Didn't know what it was at all, set to to understand. And basically, in the 1930s, research was done to establish the meaning of movement. So every human being has a unique uh, movement pattern, which is a, becomes a thinking pattern, which impacts on the decisions we take. And that was the light bulb moment that made me realize understanding the process is just not adequate. You need to understand, and you can understand in advance, where people will put the energy and what the consequences of that will be. So very powerful stuff. Absolutely, because yeah, when I was looking up decision-making, there's lots on process and yes. lots on categories of decision-making, but not a lot on what you talk about. Um, what, what are the kind of biggest mistakes you see organisations making around decision-making that relates to the stuff that you do? Well, as an example, you will know people who focus on the researching. Where are the facts? How can we do this? And they won't be prepared to move on until they've really exhausted uh, that exploration. And maybe they are expecting that the right answer will fall out at the end. It never does, but that's the expectation. Similarly, you will know people who when an issue is raised, they will immediately know what's to be done, when it's to be done and where it's expected to go. They may or may not go and look for the information to support their view or to evaluate the options. They're very clear on the way ahead. And you will know people who weigh the pros and cons time and again, and they go on and on and on. And you think, will they ever reach a decision? and they may or may not. Those three um, approaches coincide with quite distinct stages of the decision-making process. And if people are in that mindset and focused in that way, getting them on the same page, ready to commit to the identical decision, it's never going to happen. So if you can understand how people approach their thinking and therefore their decision-taking, you can facilitate them to come together to focus on the same thing at the same time and actually make a decision that will stick. So those sorts of three different types of behaviours may influence decision-making in an organisation depending on who is chairing the meeting or leading the organisation and what their personal preference is for one of those three things. Is that right? Well, it's not about preference. It's about their essential focus. It is a fundamental building block. So if you have somebody who immediately knows what's to be done, they will speak with authority and expect everybody else to fall in line. And depending on what uh, their role is, they may or may not um, succeed in getting everybody browbeaten beaten into their point of view. So it's something that happens unconsciously, Sarah. But once we can unpick that consciousness, we can use it constructively. 
and how does that fit you know there are some people in this world who will you know there was a book i read called blink um yeah. which is about you know it's kind of like your gut instinct is the right thing um how does that square with with this stuff well interesting thought um if i just go back to what's the relationship people as all this is based on movement and people immediately think about do you emulate the uh, stance being taken by the other person to empathize do you cross your arms do you flap your it's a, it's nothing to do with that it's an integrated movement that uh, occurs from the top of your head to the tips of your toes and you may well say that's instinctive it isn't it's unconscious it's laid down um, when we come into this world it develops until we reach maturity and then we take it with us to the end of our days so it is that fundamental i don't know um, the exact relationship between gut and integrated movement which is what it is but i suspect there's a fair old correlation so could you give us some like for people listening that maybe uh, want a tangible example of how this integrated movement plays out in life because we you've given some examples about the research the procrastinator the sort of impulsive decision maker if you like to at a to me sort of paraphrasing there but is there examples where in life that we might you might be able to distinguish between those uh, categories uh, with a real life example well um you may well be familiar with this I've I've profiled people and they take their profile back and they share it with their spouse or or their partner and their partner reads it very often they just fall about laughing but frequently they say well I'm you do that all the time I just didn't know why you did it and then there's the example of um the, the person not actually telling um the person they lived with that they'll be away on business for the week the following week or they've just booked a family holiday and it's not that they're being secretive and they don't want to share it but in their thinking process it's not necessary to share it and so so the poor old person on the other side is thinking oh and i'm supposed to accommodate to this now so it literally um, applies whether it's us in a, a workplace or us in a, a personal place and if i take my my own example one of the things that we pick up on is the inherent need to think by talking so that people will say in one uh, sentence something they then contradict in the next and um so my boss would come along and and peer into the office and he'd say what are you doing Sharon i'm saying well i'm doing x y and z that's what you wanted oh no he said i was just thinking oh right can that move on um and the other thing that we some people do is they have to think pri- privately so if you prodded me and says well what do you think Cheryl if i haven't thought about it privately i'll have a host of ways to say push off don't want to share at the moment and that dynamic is very important so in my own case in the researching stage of a decision i'm very private people don't know i've locked on to a topic but i'm like a sponge i absorb it all 
in intention when we're deciding what's to be done, what's important, what's the sequence in which to do it, I'm very private. So people haven't a clue. When it comes to commitment, which is our person who knows exactly what's to be done and when, I'm very sharing. So I meet with my colleagues and off I go and I assume they all know what I'm doing and, I sh and they look at me and all gone out and say, but I didn't even know that was under, under discussion. You haven't involved me. I haven't made a contribution. So there's a fair chance they will not buy in to what I'm proposing we do. So for me, I'm not going to change my thinking process, but I am going to be disciplined enough to think, oh, drats, I've got to go around this circle again and involve them. Sorry, that's a bit of a rant. No, no, but that's really good. There are some really good examples there. And I guess people listening might be thinking, well, how does, how does what you're talking about, this movement profiling, um, fit with other types of pro profiling like DISC or those sorts of profiles? It's not in conflict with those at all. They are really valuable tools. And depending on which uh, psychometric you're talking about, they're designed for, for different means. What this does is sit underneath and support them and very often explains why you have that particular profile. So they're complementary, not in conflict. So we often find something similar in a Myers-Briggs to this, like that you'd be like, oh, oh yes. that makes sense. Both of those things make sense. Yes. And it's hardly surprising if our fundamental patterns of thinking come out in our preferences. And of course, we can shape and develop our preferences. So I could take you to um, Techie Tom, for example, who you've heard me talk of, an engineer by background. He learned of necessity to be a strategist because that was the role he was in. In reality, his movement pattern does not support that. But he's, he did it for so many years, he absorbed it and it plays out all the time. So there is a complex relationship, Sarah. So have you, I mean, we, we've been working together, so I'm, I'm actually curious to know whether you've been thinking about what sort of thing that I do. Have you, have you picked up on anything from me in the time we've been working together? Well, you're definitely a sharer. <laughs> you're, you're also a person who picks up on ideas from all over the place and applies them in the circumstances you're in and makes them come, come to life because you use those reference points that we explore in one of two ways. We either pick up on ideas through film, through reading, through conversation, through papers, whatever, and we see the relationship and we think, ah, oh, I can apply that. Or we just think without any sort of pedigree and you think, where the blazes did, did that come from? Just let me give you an example of a really charismatic chief exec. I always think of him as an intellectual kleptomaniac. He was one of those people he'd pick up on ideas. And uh, it might be a game show, for example, and he'd come into the office. And because of his charisma, people had absolute confidence in him and they wanted to follow whatever it, he was after. And when it worked, it was fantastic. But when it didn't, it completely disrupted the organisation, cost them a lot of time and effort and resource, etc. 
So he learnt, along with his colleagues, he gave them permission, if you like, to take his brainwaves, whatever they were, scrutinise them, and if they passed the test, they would implement them. And if they didn't pass the te test, they'd say, sorry, that's not going to happen. And he accepted it and moved on. So it really is quite fundamental. That's really interesting. Yeah, my, my partner's nickname for me is Sharer. She calls me an oversharer. That's what that's one that's quite funny. But I used to do the same because I have lots of ideas. And when I was leading a team, my two deputies in terms of the the, the, the department that I was running were completely opposite to me in the in the Myers Briggs because I wanted people who would do exactly because I know I've got you know I've got a mind like a butterfly I'm an ideas person not a complete finisher in, in a lot of senses I do what I have to but I wanted those people to keep me and my, you know everything on check so that's quite that's quite interesting that you talked about him that's that's interesting cool okay so what I'm also interested in you work predominantly with boards and leadership teams but yes. do these decision making I don't know what you call it, sort of practices. Do they apply at all levels of the organisations or just at the top? At the top, they are the exemplars. So if they're dysfunctional in their behaviour, if they can't tell one priority from another, they take inconsistent decisions and expect them all to be implemented yesterday, that will set the norm and it will cascade down through the organisation. If, however, they take clear, consistent, well thought through decisions which are supported by proper implementation plans, that becomes the norm. So it applies through all levels of the organisation. It's just most pronounced and becomes um, most impactful at the top. I suppose you've got to start there because if you get the strategy wrong, then, then the rest of it is, is pointless anyway. That's cool. So, how do you increase the odds of making a great decision then. In the stuff that you're doing for your workshop at the moment, you're, you're using exemplars of great decision making, but how do you increase the odds of your success? You've got to get everybody on the same page. If they're not on the same page, forget it. You've got to actively listen and involve everybody because very often you will have authoritative voices who are absolutely clear what has to be done whilst others around the table can't get a word in edgeways. Even if they've got critical information, it's not listened to. You have to make sure that the preparation is fit for purpose. So, for example, I've recently wor worked with a board where they have to take some really strategic decisions, and yet the executive is providing them with very detailed information well, if you do that, it's projection and reflection. Give me a host of detail and guess what? I'm going to scrutinise the detail. So get the preparation to be appropriate for whatever it is you're there to do. Be prepared to invest the time and the energy necessary. Don't take decisions against an artificial deadline because it just won't stick. And be clear once you've taken a decision, how's it going to be followed through? Who's going to take responsibility? When are you going to get the feedback, etc.? And for heaven's sake, if the deadlines are missed, that's not acceptable. You've got to take the people who are responsible to account. 
So those are just some of the things that if you think about them, they surround, they create the environment in which people will come together and take solid decisions. That's brilliant. Thank you for sharing those. And, and is there something for individuals to learn here too? Or is it just around the teams? No, no, it's absolutely for the individuals. So as an example, I was profiling an individual. He was going for uh, the top job um, in a very large planning department huge responsibility. He'd been passed over the last time uh, that job had been advertised, but he was hell-bent on getting this job. When I gave him his profile, he said, oh my God, I now understand why I didn't get the job in the first place, and that if I had succeeded in getting it, the stresses and strains on me would have been beyond my ability to cope. So he said, I don't want to even apply. It's not for me. Because he realised the requirements of the job did not sit, were not aligned with his profile. And so he walked away from that opportunity. Wow, that's really interesting. So what did he see? I don't know if you're able to talk about it, but what well, did he see there that, that gave him that, that epiphany? Well, he the job inquired a real focus on the future, a real strategic focus. He didn't do that naturally. And if he didn't lead the team to be able to do that, it wasn't going to happen. And yet he would have had the politicians and everybody else down on him, you know, demanding results that he couldn't give. And that's the thing that stands out for me. But the way in which he was able to influence others around the table. It is about how you position yourself to influence others. Some people speak with authority. They don't shout and thump the table and scream and do all this, but they speak with enough authority and conviction that people listen to them. Other people don't do that. They tend to speak more quietly. They don't make them the uh, case with such force. And if they're battered to one side, they'll pick up the phone, meet at the water cooler, meet socially, and they'll keep on bringing the subject up. They're rather like the mosquito. They won't go away. And for those of us who are pressurers, we just want to bat them out of the way, but they're not going to give up until their view has been accepted. So there are those two very different ways of influencing around the table. My way is not the right way, nor is theirs. You have to judge what is appropriate in the circumstances. And I observed a very embarrassing case. The board had taken a decision, life had moved on, next board meeting came, and this individual who was a lovely person wanted to reintroduce the subject again because the decision was that was taken was not one he could support. And to everybody's embarrassment, after a while, the chairperson said very bluntly, we've taken the decision, stop it. We're not prepared to hear anything else from you. Oh dear. <laughs> no. 
gosh. So, so, so horses for courses. <laughs> so in that scenario then, where would you get that board to? So that this didn't, because that's a, that was a bad thing. That damaged relationships, presumably between that yes. person and and so on. Would you get them somewhere else? Yes. Um, the the thing to do when you have what I would call a persister who just won't take no for an answer, is you have to get them to think in advance of any public setting. What are the real issues? What is genuinely important and what are the costs and benefits of their view being taken and then they have to make a judgment i'd like to pursue this but frankly it's it's not going to work and it's not worthwhile and from the other side from the pressurer's side they have to um, accommodate the fact that people work differently and they need to be tolerant of the persisters because you need those two to balance each other's out. If you have a load of pressurers around the table, these are people who speak with authority and know exactly what has to be done, they may not actively listen to their colleagues and it may become something of a competitive battleground as they each uh, compete for their view to, to be accepted and they stop listening because they're so hell-bent on putting their point of view forward. With proper facilitation, if you hold up the mirror, they go, oh yes, we need to put some things in place here and do it a bit differently. <laughs> that's brilliant. And that's a nice segue into my next question. Was, what sort of results have you seen where organisations have invested in learning how to make better decisions? Because this is quite a niche. I had not come across this before. You you are a sort of bit of a lone wolf at the moment here. So, but what results have you seen when they, when they recognize they need to do this? Well, for example, this particular board, they made their decisions. They expected the results to happen instantly. And when they didn't, they'd think, okay, we'll move on to something else. That created absolute chaos in the organisation because what were the priorities? And they were holding their breath. What's going to happen at the next board meeting? What else are we going to be expected to do? With proper facilitation, they put in place the routines to do the research so they knew what decisions uh, to take. They learnt to look beyond what had worked for them well in the past they understood the need to widen the, sp the scope and, and seek alternatives, etc., etc. So with a few simple disciplines, they brought some sanity to their meetings, clarity to the organisation, and their organisation was able to function much more effectively. Let me give you the example of the consultation process for a major infrastructure project. It was a big infrastructure project. They got the programme together and they sent out two presenters. One was a, a far-reaching, could see the future, see the benefits, could promote it very convincingly. The other was a researcher. He knew all the facts and the figures and he could dredge them up. And when he didn't know the answer, he'd say, oh, I don't know that, I'll have to go and research it. The two of them together on a public platform created utter confusion. 
Who do you believe? The big picture person that really got your enthusiasm or the detailed person who could be convincing but then didn't know things and you think, oh, I'm not so sure about this. So they went back to the drawing board and what they did was they realised they had to prepare the anticipated questions and responses in private, hand them over to the articulate person who could actively promote them and put the right spin on them, etc., and gain the commitment of the communities that would be affected by this big infrastructure project. When they looked at the costs of reformatting the programme for consultation, they reckoned it saves them a quarter of a million, which was quite significant. Wow, wow. So, it, I mean, having this sort of information and, and putting stuff in strategies in place to avoid making these mistakes is, is really valuable. And yeah. I mean, we've talked in the past about organisations that, you know, there's, there are a lot of organisations that under pressure can make a good decision because people tend to leave the egos and they're, you know, they focus. Yeah. But it doesn't happen that often, does it? But, but this yeah. opens the door for people to make good decisions all the time. Is that what, is that what you think? Yes, because the number of times when boards or leadership teams are really haphazard and, and not clear thinking, etc. And they say, oh, but we always come together in a crisis. And I always say, but why do you have to wait for a crisis? You could actually put the routines in place to make it happen day in and day out and stop creating the uncertainty and chaos and, and the cost for the organisation. So it's very much about raising consciousness about something you do unconsciously, if you see what I mean, and then recognising how all the contributors around the table impact the process and finding ways to make the very best of it. And it's not painful. Once you've learned how to do it, you can do it on autopilot. That's brilliant. We've been working together because in the past, you haven't needed really to get your message out there in no. the same way as you do today, because basically you were overrun with, you know, people kept referring you and referring you, but you know, the situation has changed and you're actually doing a workshop so that more people can find out yes. about this stuff. Can you tell me a bit more about that? Yes, I mean, I knew the theory of developing a pipeline. I didn't have a need and I didn't do it. Black mark. Um, but then when it came to realising most of my clients had retired, I thought, oh, golly gosh, I've got to do something differently. And most of my assignments uh, started off by my working at the top of the organisation. They had either a difficulty to resolve or they had a change of key personnel, so they wanted to accelerate their the learning. Um, and so I'd start there and very often I'd go on to completely uh, restructure the entire organisation to make it fit for purpose um, and, and current and future conditions. Now I realise if I'm going to go out to the marketplace, I need a much simpler message. And because most of my workers come via the need to look at the decision making at the top, that's the, the way to go in. So. I've put a, a masterclass together 
Discover the three steps to improving organisational effectiveness by eradicating the chaos and cost of bad decisions. And what people will walk away with is understanding why decisions fail, how to build on the strengths of their team and to get them all on the same page, and the secret formula that leads to the powerful and effective decision-making processes. So that's the focus. And it's meant for people at board and leadership uh, team level who are frustrated by the decisions that are not implemented. So if you can recall Greta Thunberg, when uh, the Prime Minister was talking about all these grand expectations of the COP22 coming up, she said, great, but without implementation, it doesn't mean anything. And when we hear the government pronouncements on any number of things, they sound really energising. And then you think, but there's no substance to underpin them. So the implementation um, is really crucial. There, it's meant for people where they see um, decisions being taken, but without genuine commitment to implementation. For folk, particularly the HR um, directors and the company secretaries who can see the bad dysfunctional dynamics around the table and they're supposed to have the magic dust to sort it all out but they're not in a position to do so they need help to do it and it's meant for those people who just want to assess are we as good as we could be what could we do differently which would actually enhance our current approach to decisions so that's what it's about. It's being offered next week on the 12th and the 15th of um, October. If you go on to my um, LinkedIn site, you will see the link to be able to see the details and make a registration. That's right, brilliant. And it's completely free, isn't it? Absolutely free. And at the end of it, you will walk away with lots of handy hints of what you can do to yourself both to assess what state you're in as far as the decision-making uh, is um, concerned, so you're not committed to anything. And for those people who want to accelerate their learning, of course, happy to come along and, and talk about how that could be done, because we're actually going to, to offer um, a health check, which is a, a, a short, sharp routine to be able to give feedback to the relevant board or leadership team. Brilliant. And so that's next week. And we'll put a link in the show notes uh, so that people can also pick that up from there and, and go and register. So that would it be great. Like it would be a great thing to do if you, you know, if you've never thought about decision making before. Uh, it's just there might be some epiphanies there beyond what we've talked about today. Cool. And, and one thing that I wanted to ask you is, you know, we've, you mentioned about the pipeline and, and all that good stuff. How has speaking and storytelling made a difference to you and your business? I have always, through my career, used stories to make a point. Um, but working with you has really emphasised that a good story is worth a bookload of detail. I worked with a colleague who would often say to me, Cheryl, you're writing for the Daily Mail reader not for academia, just, you know, do it again. 
And that's a, a philosophy that you have reinforced. So although I stray into academia and all its disciplines on occasion, I have a stiff word with myself. No, it's Joe Public you're writing for. They don't understand this vocabulary. So that's been important. The other thing is putting the, the masterclass together was something I could do. I understood, although the way in which one uses PowerPoint, etc., has changed dramatically over the years. That's fine. But what I really had to come to terms with was all the technical stuff to put the promotion together, to know how to uh, run this, etc., etc. And I've been guided to that through working um, with you. And fortunately, I have a natural curiosity about technology. So I've been utterly ignorant and thought, OK, so how does this work? And got, got on with it. So that's been really va a really valuable investment. Brilliant. Well, I just love the passion that you have for getting your message out there and for the difference it can make to organisations in you know averting disaster, because there's a lot of bad yes. decisions we've seen resulting in companies going out of business and Indeed. and all sorts and you know one wrong decision really can jeopardize the future of an organization yes. um, and and so it really is important stuff and i love that you're you're so passionate about it and you have this big mission so um do uh, you know people get along to that workshop that masterclass if you can now i have some before i let you go i have some standard questions that i ask all my guests and I guess, you know, the first one we may have covered, but um, I guess thinking about your, your whole sort of career, what's the best thing that speaking has done for you? Oh, my goodness. Um, when I've, um, for example, I completely restructured an organisation from top to bottom. And this was an organisation that had real world-class scientists in it, all of whom felt it was quite okay to do what they fancied doing on the day. And Mrs. Discipline came along and said, no, 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 you can't be doing that. And I reshaped all their jobs, identified where they had the authority and uh, autonomy to do what they need, wanted to do, but most importantly, where there were independences between their roles and others, both within and outside the organisation. And so the transformation of that being accepted and being implemented very successfully was really great. And when it came to unveiling the new arrangements, somebody got up from the back and said, well, couldn't we have done this for ourselves? And the director stood up and said, if we'd wanted a monkey, we wouldn't have employed Cheryl to do this job. So I get invigorated whenever I see a transformation, be it just around the board table or a major restructuring of an organisation. That's what gives me a spring in my step and the incentive to get out of bed in the morning. And you wouldn't be able to do that if you weren't able to communicate. Uh, and use those stories and all sorts of things to influence the people, the stakeholders, because it, it is influence, it's not command. Absolutely it is. And, and like many people, although I spent 15 years as an academic, 
I'm not a salesman. Of course, it is different to marketing. And so the notion of story-led marketing is aligned with where I'm at because I could no more go out and sell snow to the Eskimos than fly to the moon. <laughs> I'm not sure that's true. Cool. Okay, thank you for that. And uh, have you ever had a, a time where a speaking gig or something like that went, went horribly wrong? Can you? Is there like an experience you like, oh, no, that was awful? There must be, but I, I think this, the one, the thing that stands out more than anything was I was working um, with a board and I was doing work through a group that had been brought together from their st staff to uh, identify how to do business differently. And we were all geared up and I made the presentation and it was all very convincing and all the rest of it. And when I um, was asked to leave the room, one of the directors was exceedingly hostile to me and he succeeded in getting me thrown off the assignment. It's never happened before or since. I subsequently met one of the directors, another director sitting around the table and he said, Cheryl, we should never have let that happen because what you were saying was absolutely right and we should have done it. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> Sometimes it's not, it's not you, it's the message, isn't it? <laughs> absolutely. But, but that was quite a salutary experience. And while I was cross about it, the day before uh, the grand unveiling, I had met with the, the head poncho and I'd taken him painstakingly through it all, so there were no surprises, please. And yet, on the day, he didn't stand up for himself. That's a shame. That's a shame. And, and that was quite devastating. But you bounced back, got back on that horse. Absolutely, I did. <laughs> <laughs> OK. Um, what is the book that you've read that's had most impact on your life and why? This was a real challenge for me. So I, I went to my bookcase and I picked up two books, which was, is cheating really. The Blunders of Our Governments, which was published in 2013 by Anthony King and Ivor Crewe, which basically looks back at things like the poll tax and others and explains why these crazy things happen. So it's very much related to the decision-making, if you like. And then I picked up MMK, The Far Pavilions, which looks at uh, colonization and its degeneration, etc. But the thing that I took away from it more than anything was that central message. No invader, however powerful or talented, can basically undermine the geography and culture of Afghanistan. It will stand against everything. It will always reemerge as its own place and people, which is quite apposite in the current climate. Yeah. Wow, that's really interesting. So you've you've been listening to previous podcast episodes in Cribbing by the Salmon. <laughs> no, I haven't. <laughs> Have they both come up before? No, no, they never have. No, it's, it's, it's good. Okay, next question. Um, what's the best bit of business advice you've had and why? Um, I think 
be clear why something needs to be done and stand by your conviction. Don't be buffeted about by conflicting advice because you'll become very limp and unfocused. Obviously change if there's a need to change, but once you know what you're about, stick to the knitting. Okay, cool. Assuming that you've involved everyone and got everyone on the same page and everything else. <laughs> or, or in my case, go along and make it all happen and then sell the proposition. <laughs> cool. Okay, last question. Um, if you could choose one mentor, and they can be alive or dead, fictional or non-fictional, who would you choose and why? Oh, crikey. Oh, dear, that's a real killer. I don't know. I've been fiercely independent from day one. <laughs> so so you again, just need a clone of Cheryl to be your... <laughs> I'm, this is very disconcerting, Sarah. I shall have to give this some serious thought. Probably I'd go for Handley. He's uh, written wonderful books like The Empty Raincoat, etc., which has projected what's going to happen in the future and the consequences for how we manage the country, the lives of businesses and continents. Cool. Now, Cheryl, is there anything else that you want to say about decision-making or anything related to the problem that you solve that you think needs to be said in order to call this interview complete? I would merely make the observation we can treat decision-making as something we do on autopilot. But that's just not good enough, particularly if you're in a position of managing other people. Make the effort to take it seriously, recognise your own strengths, and very particularly recognise you don't have to be perfect in every respect and learn how to work with others who can complement and compensate and bring out of you a capability you didn't know you had. Brilliant. Love that. That's fantastic. There's a soundbite right there. Smashing. Cheryl, thank you so much uh, for coming on and sharing about this subject that I don't think gets enough attention. And um, I hope people go to the masterclass and get lots more because you have a lot of experience in the art and science of decision making. So thank you very much for, for coming on. Thank you very much, Sarah. Did you get a lot of aha moments there? Now, working with Cheryl inside the Speaking Club Live group has certainly made me see decision making in a new light. And I only wish I'd had access to this stuff and her help when I was trying to wrangle exec teams and boards in my role as HR director quite a few years ago now. Anyway, if you want your business or organisation to avoid the pitfalls of poor decision making and get some tips and tools that you can put into practice, then do go and check out Cheryl's Masterclass. Also, go and connect with her on LinkedIn. I'm sure she'd love some feedback. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you so much for joining me and I'll be back next week to keep you moving forward on your speaking and marketing journey. And if you're a regular listener and you got value from the show, you're no doubt wanting to share that with others. And it would be so amazing if you left a rating or review over at ratethispodcast.com slash TSC. It will just take you a couple of minutes, but it means a lot. 
And I really love getting honest feedback. It helps me develop the show um, and give you more of what you want. In the meantime, though, don't you forget to go out, grab your life by the nuts and get cracking. Bye bye. Getting to practice your speaking in front of an audience is a crucial part of testing your message and developing your skills and experience as a speaker. Yet opportunities to do this in the right environment can be hard to find. Add in the chance to get expert feedback and coaching on your content structure and delivery and the opportunities are even fewer. But that's what you'll get as a member of the Speaking Club Live. Each week we'll be focusing on a different aspect of business speaking from pitching to presenting to videos and lives. There'll be hot speak slots and you'll get the chance to practice sharing your message, your storytelling, your humor, and all the different aspects of speaking in front of me and other members. Then you'll get feedback and coaching from me and your peers so that you're moving forward on your speaking journey with accountability and support. If you'd like to find out more about how you can become a member of the Speaking Club Live so that you can build your confidence, improve your delivery and become a better speaker, then go to saraharcher.co.uk slash club now.